Welcome back for another episode of the LFDC Podcast. My name is Pastor Jesse Smell, and I'm glad you're with us today. Today's sermon is from February 8th on Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. We are reading from Ephesians chapter 1. So before we get into this, I know many of you uh, maybe did not hear last week's introduction to the book of Ephesians. But contextually, what we want to establish, I'm not going to go into everything we talked about last week. It's about a 35-minute podcast if you do want to go back. But the context, the things that I want to review from last week are, uh, it is truth that sings, doctrine set to music. Ephesians is undoubtedly the least occasional of all of Paul's letters in the New Testament. It is more poetic and less time-sensitive. Because it is not a need-to-know letter, it is a desire-for-you-to-know letter. Most of Paul's writings were to Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians. They were, I need you to know this. I need to deal with this scenario. I need to deal with this problem in your church. That's why Corinthians has two letters, and they're both long. They had a lot of issues. Ephesians is not as such. Ephesians is written in a way, here is what I would like for you to know. It is not addressing any major problems. It is not addressing any major doctrinal issues within the church of Ephesus. It is not dealing with those things. What it is dealing with is, I like this information. I want to pass it along to you. So that's why Ephesians is so beautiful and so wonderful. Romans is considered closest to Ephesians, and Romans is a bit longer. uh, But Romans and Ephesians are both, um, they're different. They're different. And Romans also, Paul didn't know the church of Rome. Keep that in mind. He did not know the church in Rome personally. He had never met them. He wrote to them without knowing them. And so that is possibly why he wasn't able to discipline them or correct them as easily is because he didn't have a personal relationship with them. He had only heard of the good faithfulness of that group of people, the the church in Rome. And so it's a beautiful book as well, the book of Romans. It's, It's eloquent. It's poetic. Uh, But Ephesians, he had a very intimate relationship with the church in Ephesus. And so Ephesians is written in a way that it's not, it's very personal. He knows the church. He knows all of the Christians in Ephesus. So it's what I would like for you to know, my dear friends that I've served in ministry with for the past two and a half years. He was in Ephesus for two and a half years debating for the sake of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And so this book, this book is written in a way that I want you to know this, my dear friends. Foundations, uh, things to know. We are going to go through the verses 3 through 14 today. And so verse 3, we, we only read verse 1 and 2 last week. We're going to read 3 through 14 today. Uh, and it is a praise and the extent of our blessings. This entire uh, section we are going to read. The essence of spiritual blessings and where they come from, how they come about. Verse 4 through 6 deals with the election of the Father, God the Father. Uh, Verse 7 through 12, the next five verses, deal with the redemption of Jesus Christ, the Son. And then verse 13 and 14 deal with the sealing to the Father, to Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, which which was given to us as a helper in verse 13 and 14. So the particular gifts in mind, to keep in mind while we're reading this, are election, Adoption, grace, redemption, forgiveness, knowledge, inheritance, and the final mark of approval, the seal of the Holy Spirit. And so um, all all of the gifts between verse 3 and 14 are understood as elements of this one blessing and are therefore grounds for giving praise. And the one blessing being 
sealed in the Holy Spirit. Luke is very active now, if you guys did not know. Yes. He can crawl and he can get to his feet now, so it's only a matter of time before he's walking. And once he's walking, we're going to have to cage him. <laughs> Something to know about this passage as well, verse 3 through 14, is that it is 200 and to 202 total words. In the original Greek language, this is one sentence. There is no pause, there is no break, there is no period. This is the longest sentence in the book of Ephesus, or Ephesians, to the, to the church of Ephesus. Uh, so the ideas and principles and exclamations of praise come tumbling out of his mouth um, in what John Stott writes is in a continuous cascade with such joy and intensity that he dared not pause to take a breath, much less end it with a period. So this passage, verse 3 through 14, though in the English language may have exclamations or periods or commas, in the original Greek language was just one sentence. And Paul was not bad with his language. He was not a bad writer. He was not bad with grammar. He knew what he was doing when he wrote. Everything he wrote was with a particular um, emphasis or something in mind. And so when you read this, understand it to be all of this was meant to just be I need to tell you all of this without a pause, without one single pause. This is something to be, uh, to glorify God and praise God for. Something that is important to note is the Trinitarian structure, which I already covered, but he, he first admonishes the Father in verses 4 through 6, and then the Son, 7 through 12, and then the Holy Spirit in the final two verses we'll read. So he does cover the Trinity of praise. He gives honor to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, and they are knitted together in the work of our salvation. The entire character of, of God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, the entire character of all three, knitted together as one, gives a stamp of approval on this blessing, on this message. Um, each stanza, so in this poetic nature, think of, concludes with the refrain, to the praise of the glory of his grace. <laughs> to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. Um, so this is very reflective uh, language where he glorifies not only God and praises him, but he uses the Trinity, he uses the word grace, and he glorifies God, and it also speaks to his divine sovereignty. In these verses, verses 3 through 14, in these one sentence of 202 words in the original language, you will find... Um, a direct link to God's will, his sovereignty, 11 times in these verses. In verse 4, he elected us. In verse 5, he predestined us. Verse 5, according to his good pleasure. Verse 5, God's will. Verse 9, God's will. Verse 9, his good pleasure. Verse 9, his purpose. Verse 11, he foreordained, foreordained us. Verse 11, his purpose. Verse 11, his counsel. Verse 11, his will. So 11 times you see this language of salvation and sealed by the Spirit is in relation to his sovereignty. Now I will present to you um, an Arminian point of view on this passage because I don't think it's fair to just give you my point of view. So if you don't like the idea of God being sovereign, which I say jokingly, but also there are good Arminians out there, so you can have that opinion. Um, the Arminian view on this passage, and I'm just going to give you this before we even read it, is that uh, 
this passage by Paul is written in a way to say you, Gentiles of Ephesus, are now grafted in like us Israelites who were chosen before the foundation of the world. And so the Arminian point of view on this passage is that those who are called according to his will, his purpose, um, who are foreordained, he's saying you now are like that because you are being grafted in to the salvation of the Messiah in which Jews believe, not you. And so the Arminian point of view is that um, Gentile believers are being reassured that they are just as much chosen, in, in quote-unquote chosen, as Jewish believers had been because God's choice is not based on whether they are Jews or Gentiles, but rather upon faith in Christ as the only necessary criteria. And so if you don't necessarily like the language of he chose you, you'd rather say I chose Christ then that's your point of view in this passage, is that this letter is written in a way to say you were grafted in as the Israelites were chosen. However, that point of view does not negate the fact that God chose Israel, and we, that's another debate you can get into, is why did God choose Israel, right? Um, because if you read the Old Testament with that in mind, it becomes frustrating in our carnal mind to understand why God kept choosing certain people um, Israel being Jacob, and if you refer back to Romans 9 and 10 in the election there, you see the language of, in Jacob whom I love, but Esau I hated. And so that's another debate in and of itself. But if you lean toward the Arminian point of view, you have to read this as Gentiles being chosen as the Israelites were chosen. Quotes on sovereignty I did want to pull for you guys and give you some Arminian uh, theologians or histori historical people to look at if you want to. Jonathan Edwards, you contribute nothing to your salvation but the sin in which made it necessary. It's one of my favorite quotes. Um, I will probably always have it in my mind that I contribute nothing to my salvation but the sin in which made it necessary. C.H. Spurgeon said, nothing can happen but what God ordains and therefore why should I fear? Uh, J.I. Packer says, To know nothing that happens in God's world apart from God's will may frighten the godless, but it stabilizes the saints. And so J.I. Packer, I love this, he essentially argues, if you know God is sovereign and you're of God, then it stabilizes us. Because we may not understand what's happening, but we know God is in control. But if you're godless and you don't believe in God, then it can be a little, it, it, it's shaky. Uh, famous Arminians that I wanted to allow for you guys to know and know their names and, and study their work if you wish. Uh, John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist movement, who did lead to the Holiness movement, if you were in Sunday school. Uh, so John Wesley was Arminian. Uh, A.W. Tozer, whom I love, was Arminian. Uh, Billy Graham, revivalist, was Arminian. D.L. Moody, Oswald Chambers, and C.S. Lewis. Yeah, those are all good names, right? Yeah, yeah all good names. So there are, and something C.H. Spurgeon, I shared it on my Instagram, but something C.H. Spurgeon said was whether or not you're a Calvinist or Arminian, be first a Christian, right? And so I think it's important to know while we go through this, we may disagree on secondary issues on God's foreordination or predestination, but I think it's important to know we each need to study certain people certain, and study the Bible for ourselves and come to our own conclusions. I think do not let anyone tell you what to believe. That's what I, I, I cling to. Even though I stand up here as your pastor, I'm saying this is, this is what I think. 
I'm never going to stand up here and say, this is what you have to believe. I will never say that. I will argue if it's something that's going to maybe be detrimental to your salvation, or I believe it's her heretical or really bad, then I will, I will talk to you very personally and very, very uh, deeply and profoundly on that topic. Like if you start saying, well, Jesus isn't really uh, our savior, we actually need to look to uh, Gandhi. Okay, stop coming to our church then, because that's not what we teach, that's not what we believe, right? So we'll have a real conversation. But on secondary issues, such as what we're going to cover today, do not let anyone tell you what to believe. Seek the word of God and diligently pray for yourself. Um, I am not the sole giver of truth. The word of God is. And so you need to look to the word of God and study whom you wish to study, but look at both sides. I think it's important to study not just what I believe, uh, Steve said in our elder meeting, it's important to know what the other side believes and it sharpens you. And if you can't re uh, rebut or have a response to their opinion, then you need to really evaluate some things. Um, so an example I thought of is, why did we ever start baptizing babies? I know our church doesn't do this, but if you look at a lot of Christian denominations, they still baptize babies. Um, a lot do. You don't see that in the Word of God ever. But how did they come to that conclusion? Because someone on a stand at some point said, we need to baptize our babies so they're saved upon birth and so that they can be dedicated to God their whole lives and they'll serve God. But if you know anyone who's been baptized as a baby, that doesn't mean they'll serve God their life. So we, um, at least me and I believe all three of the elders, we cling to a credo-baptistic opinion, which is, you, can only, you should only be baptized if you are fully aware of what you're doing. Uh, so, but, but that's the thing, is when you study scriptures for yourself, maybe you'll agree with the Catholics and, and other denominations of faith and think, yeah, I should baptize my baby. Another example, and sorry to pick on Catholics here, but why do they pray to Mary? They came to the conclusion that Mary, being the mother of Jesus, must be esteemed and more important to some capacity than Jesus himself, because she was his mother. And so they pray to Mary and to the other saints to pray for them because they're in heaven and they have a better relationship with Jesus than we do. So they'll pray to Mary and they'll pray to the saints, Peter, Paul, um, in an effort to help their salvation. Why do, why do uh, teachings and, and beliefs come out like that? It's because people believed what their leader told them. So I'm not going to ever tell you you have to believe what I believe if it's a secondary issue. If it's a primary issue, then we're going to have some deep conversations about it, and that's where we need to draw some lines and say, if you don't believe Jesus Christ is the Messiah, then this church isn't for you. I love you. Go in peace. <laughs> but secondary issues, I am not going to tell you what you have to believe. Continuing in grace, the idea of grace, there is also a distinct emphasis on God's grace. How appropriate, then, to speak of God's sovereign grace, no fewer than five times is grace mentioned in verse 2, 6, 6, and 7, and 8. Um... So when we look at the spiritual blessings he is talking about in this passage, we have to look at election, adoption, grace, redemption, forgiveness, knowledge, and inheritance, and the seal of the Spirit, which I said earlier on, but we need to look at that. So without further ado, that's a lot of information that I'm throwing at you. Bear with me, but we're going to actually start reading this now. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So you are already blessed with every spiritual blessing that you need. Whether or not you agree with that 
is up to your flesh, but scripturally, spiritually, God has given you what you need. It may not always feel like that, but that's why James, gosh darn James, tell us to count it pure joy, my brethren, whenever you face various trials, because as a Christian we know that this life isn't meant to be physical blessings, but spiritual blessings. So it says, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, something interesting when I studied the word heavenly places here, it doesn't actually mean heaven. This interpretation, what Paul is writing, there's a few different possible interpretations, but the soundest that I found was likely the idea of a supernatural or spiritual place. Um, being God, your relationship with God, and Christ and the Holy Spirit. And so essentially, today where we're living right now, but spiritual blessings. And so that seems maybe easy to say, but rather than a physical blessing of, oh, God blessed me, and now I have a $500 check arriving at my doorstep with a physical blessing, a spiritual blessing is something you don't see. So when Paul says heavenly places, it means you're blessed with blessings you don't see. And so that doesn't mean they don't take place in your life, but blessings such as joy, peace which surpasses understanding, right? Things like that. Those are things you do not see, but they're a part of your life. Uh, verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. The reason I rebut the idea that this is Gentiles about Israel is that Israel was never blameless or holy. But that is just my opinion. So it says, he chose us in, the, in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. No Israelite before Christ was holy and blameless. That's why Jesus Christ had to come. There's a fun kid song that we've been listening to with Luke by a Christian rapper by the name of Shai Lin that says, uh, it wasn't Jacob, it wasn't uh, Moses, it wasn't Samuel, it wasn't David. And it actually talks about some of their shortcomings and their failures. And it says, that's why we needed Jesus Christ. And it's a fun song. But holy and blameless before him. That reminds me of Hebrews where it says, being sprinkled clean with a clear conscience, being able to approach the throne room of God, um, feeling blameless. And it's a crazy, crazy idea because we're so sinful by nature. In love he predestined us. So in love he predestined us for adoption to himself. Adoption being that we are not of the Israelites, so you can make that argument there, to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So why are we Christians? Why are we doing what we do? It's for the purpose of his will, not our will, not our desires. So I think that's important why um, Paul writes, and in the beginning I talked about it last week, where he says, an apostle by the will of God. Because he acknowledges and he wholeheartedly believes he is not an apostle by his own strength, his own merit, his own desire, anything like that. He believes he is an apostle, writing these letters, doing what he has to do. He actually writes in another, uh, another letter that he wishes he could die, uh, but he can't for the sake of the gospel. He has to stay around a little longer. Right? That is Paul submitted to the will of God. I think Christians today, unfortunately, want to do what they want to do and hope God blesses everything they do because they want to do it. Before consulting the Lord, they'll make decisions for their own lives because they're hoping God will just bless what they do and what they want to do. But I believe we need to be according to the purpose of God's will. To the praise of his glorious grace, 
So Paul is saying to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We receive forgiveness for our trespasses in accordance to his grace. What is grace? It's undeserved favor, unwarranted I love a quote that I recently saw. Um, once again, I believe it was by R.C. Sproul. And he, he's an example. He was, he, he's Presbyterian, technically, uh, but he is a fantastic guy. But R.C. Sproul said, uh, one of the, one of the, our, it might not be R.C. Sproul, but bear with me. I'll, I'll post it on Facebook for you guys or something. But essentially, the quote was by one of these church history guys. I shouldn't reference it if I don't have it in my notes, but I, I'm reminded of it. And they said, one of the biggest reasons people wrestle with grace and God's sovereignty is because they don't have a healthy understanding of how depraved we are as people, how fallen we are as people. I think there's this idol of self in which people, especially anyone across the world, not just Christians, but everyone, thinks that they are naturally good and that they are naturally deserving of good things to come their way and it's this entitlement issue that we have just across the entire world we all only care about ourselves we all only think that we deserve something we deserve the promotion we deserve this we deserve the higher pay we deserve it's a very entitled self-serving self-seeking culture that we live in and i do believe that that self-seeking self-serving culture has infiltrated most Christian denominations. So according to the riches of his grace, his grace is unwarranted favor. So if we look at God's grace and say, I deserved that grace, we are, we are sadly mistaken. We don't deserve anything. Verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Interesting that God could lavish grace upon us in wisdom and insight. Um, I'll leave that there. If you study that verse, it's a very profound verse to me. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose. So now, once you are bought with a price by the grace of Jesus Christ, uh, by the grace of, of our Lord, yeah, and Jesus and, and, and the Heavenly Father, now we are known, or we can, we can understand more fully the mystery of his will, according to his purpose. Once again, each and everything in his will is according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So the purpose is to glorify him and eventually to unite all things. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is a very hard verse to run from, um, in my opinion, when it looks at this. We have obtained an inheritance. An inheritance is something that is set aside for you. If you think about a, a father leaving an inheritance for their son, it's a father saying, I set aside this money throughout my whole entire life for this property for my son. And I'm near my dying age, so here is your inheritance. I want to give it to you. I'm blessing you with it. The son did nothing to receive that inheritance, besides be his son, right? I look at Steve, and I know Steve. I know Steve very well. I know he's saving up an inheritance for his children. 
you know, I love my dad, but my dad's probably not saving up an inheritance for me. I, I, love, uh, I love Cece's father, my father-in-law. He always jokingly says, I have no money, but these football cards and baseball cards and basketball cards, this is your inheritance. When I die, you guys get to remember me and look at all these cards. And he actually has cards that are worth money. He has a, a one of six Patrick Mahomes signed rookie card that's already worth like $3,000, I think, when we looked at it on eBay. Um, which is, so that's, I mean, that's, that's actually pretty impressive. So I was thinking, well, th these cards actually will be worth some money because he buys nice cards, quality cards, and he's got some good ones. Um, Jared will like that. He's a Chiefs fan. I, he's got a Tyreek Hill rookie card that I thought about, uh, signed rookie card that I thought about stealing. But, you know, I can't do that according to the Bible. So he did give me uh, post, uh, post Malone. Uh, not Post Malone. Why, why am I saying Post Malone? I, I can't think of the, the basket, the mailman. Why, why can't I think of his name right now? Carl Malone. I wanted to say Post Office because a mailman, and then I mixed it with Carl Malone. So Post Malone. He lives in Utah, by the way, but he's not a Christian. Uh, Carl Malone. He gave me a signed Carl Malone card, which is pretty cool. Anyway, he always jokingly says, that's our inheritance uh, because he doesn't have any money set aside for his kids. But usually parents, usually parents set, try to set aside an inheritance for their kids. And so when you look at this, in him, in God, we have obtained an inheritance. So to me, this inheritance being the blessing of sealed with the Spirit through Jesus Christ is an inheritance, meaning I didn't do anything to get this. He set it aside for me. He set aside this blessing in which Christ gave us to be sealed to the Spirit and know God and know the mysteries of His will. It's an inheritance that He set aside for us. There's something incredibly beautiful to know that before the foundation of the world, God thought of me and said, I'm setting aside an inheritance for Jesse. He's going to be born in the year 94. Some of you guys are going, ah, that's young. He's going to be born in the year 94, and I'm so excited for him because I already have built up and set aside an inheritance for him. I love that picture. I know some people don't, but I am just in love with the idea that God is just, he has foreknown me and, and predetermined in his mind that he loves me and he has an inheritance for me and he has grafted me into his kingdom. Not by my will or my choice, but by his mercy and grace. So, but like I said, there's different opinions on this scripture, but that's my opinion. So now, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's why there's, there's peace which surpasses all understanding in knowing God, in knowing Christ. Even when America is in turmoil, there's political unrest, there's conspiracy theorists left and right, we can still have peace knowing that God is working things out for his will. Though it may not seem as such in our natural state sometimes, he is working things out for the counsel of his own will. So that we, who were, first the, uh, who were the first to hope in Christ, might not be to praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now this is where we're getting into the promise of the Holy Spirit. Um, so you heard, and I refer back to our sermon on the proclaimers. Faith comes from hearing the word of God. Um, you can only establish faith by hearing something, and you hear the word of truth, being the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Remember how I jokingly said before 
our, our lockdown, but a few weeks ago, how I said, you'll never find in Scripture, invite Jesus into your heart. That is just something we've kind of come up with as a way of explaining what we see in Scripture. Now, I'm not saying it's a bad picture. I'm just saying if you invite Jesus into your heart, that isn't actually salvation. Salvation is saying, I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize Jesus Christ paid the price for my sins, and I believe in and trust in and have assurance in, he saved me. And then you serve him, and you make Jesus your Lord. He is your Savior and your Lord, not your get-out-of-jail-free card. He's your Savior and your Lord, not the warm fuzzies in your heart. Okay? And so we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the helper in which we were promised. So now, because of the atonement of Jesus Christ, we have the helper in the Holy Spirit in which he has now entered our lives upon salvation, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So he says, if you have this Holy Spirit... That means you were bought, you were paid for, you had faith for the salvation, you heard it, you heard the gospel, you accepted it, you believed it, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is the greatest blessing of all, because now you are a guarantee of that inheritance, which God has set aside for you, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. So once again, not for our glory, but to the praise of His glory. He did this for his own will, out of his own charity, out of his own love, out of his own desire of his heart. I think one of the saddest, um, saddest things I hear is, why would a good God um, not take everyone up into heaven? You know, and, that, and that's a hard thing in our natural state of mind to really wrap our minds around is, why doesn't everyone get to heaven? But I would beg to argue that no one deserves heaven. Everyone is guilty of something. If he is a just God, a holy God, in which the scriptures say even our righteousness is as filthy rags to him, we can't earn our way to heaven. We can't do good works to get into heaven. We can't um, be so righteous to get into heaven because righteous is not something we can achieve on our own. Um, there's this belief by Martin Luther, the doctrine of justification, um, in which he talks about extra nos, which is the Latin word for outside of yourself. And so he talks about in this doctrine of justification that because we are human and carnal and fallen, we have no righteousness. We can't be righteous. So what is this righteousness in which the scripture speaks? It speaks of an outside of self-righteousness, which means... It is a borrowed righteousness from God. He puts righteousness on you. It's not something you get. It's not something you build up. It's not something you achieve. Martin Luther teaches that it is something God gives you by his grace. What is righteousness? Righteousness is right standing with God. So Luther would argue, he is reformed in thinking. Luther would argue, Luther, Martin Luther would argue that your righteousness is not of your own. Any righteousness that you think of as your own, uh, whether because of good works, charity, all those things, that's, that's not your righteousness. You have a borrowed righteousness, which is a borrowed right relationship with God, in which now you can serve him, and in your servitude it is for the glory of God. It is not for you to build up your own piety, it's not to build up your own righteousness, it's not to build up your own resume of Christian inheritance and heavenly things. That's not the purpose of good works. The purpose, is a, the purpose of good works is serving our God and saying, He has blessed me with every spiritual blessing 
that I could have. I am sealed to eternity to get into heaven with him. I have every blessing I could ever need. So now I serve him out of love and desire for him and out of a servitude of, of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so I think it's important to note those differences. And uh, so that is what I had for you guys today as we go through verses 3 through 14 next year. Next week we'll finish the chapter. Uh, so I'm super excited for this. Hopefully you guys learned something today. Hopefully you guys gained something. But I do want to um, just say that I'm super excited. I guess that's all I can say is I'm super excited for this. Ephesians is a lot of fun. Please, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, emotional outbursts, critiques, if you will, um, feel free to give me a ring and say, uh, you know, hey, well, Jesse, I, I really disagree with this verse and it doesn't make sense to me. I'm happy to talk through this with you guys because trust me when I say, I told my wife, I said, it's really hard to pare this down because there's so much good content on Ephesians that I, I literally had to pick and choose what I found to be the best um, content for today for sake of time. And so with saying all of that, uh, it's 1220. I did promise with the addition of Sunday school at 10 a.m. We're going to try to keep our sermons shorter. And so I'm going to go ahead and close in prayer. And then we'll uh, invite Ian. Do you know the announcements? Are you ready for that? Yes. We'll invite Ian up to give some announcements. The biggest being that which is happening today. Some of us are hanging out for the Super Bowl. Um, but you don't have to do that. That's okay. But we'll have fun with that. So I'll close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for another day in which we can open our word and seek you and seek understanding you and seek, uh, seek glorifying you, Father, in, in everything that you do. I just pray that each person here received their rhema word, whatever stood out to them, whatever was meant to... to perpetrate and, and, and infiltrate their heart and just, God, I just pray that you, you broke in and broke into our, our, our struggling minds and our, our broken and wretched hearts and just, and just spoke to us some truth and some clarity and revealed to us your love, revealed to us how much you love us and care for us and desire us and how you've set us aside since the foundation of the world and said, I love you, I know you, I desire you. Father, I love Romans 5 in which it says, um, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Father, how could, how could Christ die for me if he died for me while I was still sinning? Before I was even born, he died. So I know that you knew and you sent your son knowing that I was a sinner, but yet you paid that price for me. You sent your son to die on the cross for me. So, Father, I thank you that I really am a sinner. I really am um, not the best person on my own, in my own strength. Father, I'm not holy. I'm not, I'm not righteous. God, I cling to your righteousness and to your holiness and to serving you because on my own, I continually fail. I continually fall short, Father. So I thank you. I thank you for those that are here today. Father, I pray that you bless them and that you are with them. You continually provide comfort and, uh, and just peace which surpasses all understanding. Pour out joy, love, and a sound mind. Help them in their day-to-day. -day. God, be with them every step of the way. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. As always, thanks for listening in. Hope to see you next week. God bless.